Paul Gustave Doré has lost his passport while traveling in Europe. Doré is a renowned artist, so this shouldn't be a problem, right? Surely, everyone knows who he is. As he comes to a border crossing, he crosses his fingers and explains his predicament to one of the guards. He gives his name, hoping that he will be recognized and allowed to pass. But the guard just shakes his head. Many people have attempted to cross the border by claiming to be who they were not, he replies. Well, DeRay doubles down and insists that he is the famed artist that he claims to be. Well, then the guard has an idea. All right, I'll give you a test. If you pass it, I'll allow you to go through. Handing him a pencil and a sheet of paper, he tells the artist to sketch several of the people standing by. Well, this is DeRay's expertise. So without hesitation, he grabs the paper and pencil and gets to work. And he finishes so quickly and skillfully that the guard is immediately convinced that he really is this well-known artist. We all tend to be a bit skeptical like that guard, don't we? We tend to reserve acceptance of the truth until it's proven. We all need proof to believe the truth. And here in John 2, 1 through 11, Jesus proved that he is the Christ because his disciples needed proof to believe the truth, just like we all do. Turn with me to the beginning of John chapter 2, where Jesus proves the truth that he is the Christ by revealing his glory. And he does this in a very humble way, through the actions of others. He shows his power over creation, which produces faith in his disciples, and faith in those of us who are reading this account so many years later. Now, this is a rather short story. So after we read it, we're going to zoom in and look at it frame by frame. We're going to see Jesus' humility as the providential problem unfolds. Then we're going to see Jesus using others to perform this miracle in his apparently senseless solution to the problem. And then we're going to see a miracle happen as Jesus provides some wondrous wine. And we're going to see John's description of the manifested majesty of Jesus to his disciples. And all of this will show how Jesus proves that he is the Christ by revealing his glory. John 2, 1 through 11 says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here in the first five verses, verses one through five, we have the opening frame which depicts the providential problem. Here we see how Jesus proves he is the Christ by revealing his glory in a humble way. Jesus and his disciples go to Cana of Galilee we might expect the first miracle of the Christ to be performed in some grandiose way, to be seen by the most amount of people. That way, Jesus' ministry would start off with a surge of followers. But that's not what happened. We might expect Jesus to pick a more prominent place to perform his first miracle, a place like Jerusalem, but that's thinking like Nathaniel was thinking in the previous passage. Remember he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because he expected the Messiah to come from a prominent place like Jerusalem. But three days after, after Nathaniel decided to follow Jesus, they all went to Cana of Galilee. Cana was a little backwater town near Nazareth not too far from the Jordan River. This was a very humble place to perform his first miracle. And then a providential problem arose. Jesus' mother is helping out with the wedding feast when she discovers a problem. They ran out of wine. Now, if the bridegroom failed to adequately provide for the feast, then the bride's family could actually take them to court for failing to hold up their side of the marriage contract. This was a huge problem. A breach of contract with several severe legal consequences. How could this problem be fixed? Jesus' mom could tell the master of the feast about the problem, and he could send someone with money to buy more wine, but that would take way too much time. And it would take the master of the feast away from entertaining the guests and the families. No, she had to find another solution. Aha, her son, Jesus, is here. He can fix this problem because she knows he's the son of God. He's the creator of everything. Surely he can just snap his fingers or something and everything will work out. So she approaches her son and simply tells him the problem. They have no wine. This is kind of like my daughter coming up to me and saying, I'm bored or I'm thirsty. It assumes understanding of the problem and a willingness to fix it. 
Jesus' mother assumes his understanding of the problem and his willingness to fix it. But his answer actually shows a reluctance to fix this problem. He says, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? Now, this is actually a Greek idiom that effectively distanced Jesus from both his mother and the situation. This is kind of like Jesus saying, you can't force me to reveal my glory just because you're my mother. You can't play the mom card here. He also shows the reason for his reluctance to help when he says right after this, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was still sort of hiding his true identity from the world. He didn't want everyone to know that he was the Christ yet because it would hinder him from his mission. His mission was not to come in his full glory to rule and reign over the earth. Well, yet. His mission at this time was to live a perfect life and to suffer and die for sinners on the cross and then rise again to conquer sin and death. For this mission, he had to largely conceal his glory until the right time. He had to remain anonymous by ministering in humble circumstances and only subtly revealing his true glory. Well, I imagine his, more, his mother sort of cocked one eyebrow and pursed her lips. She thought this problem, or that this was a problem that still ought to be addressed by her son. I mean, she knows Jesus. She's known him for over 30 years. She knows he's gonna help. So she turns to the servants and instructs them to do whatever he tells them to do. And what he would tell them to do would sound absolutely senseless. And he decided to help, despite his initial reluctance, because his heavenly father had orchestrated this providential problem for a reason. So that he could prove his identity as the Christ to a select group of people his disciples. Well, we've seen the humble circumstances in which Jesus revealed his glory as the providential problem unfolded. Now let's look at verses six through eight to see his apparently senseless solution. Here we see how Jesus proves he is the Christ by revealing his glory through others. So there are these six water jars used for the purification rites. You see, the Jewish culture was really big on cleanliness, especially before eating and before important ceremonies, like a wedding. And each of these six water jars could hold 20 or 30 gallons. That's 120 to 180 gallons total for those who don't want to do the math. And Jesus tells the servants to fill all of these jars with water all the way to the top. That's a lot of water. Jesus, are you sure about this? I mean, we need wine, not water. 
and we need it for drinking, not washing. This solution must have sounded absolutely senseless to these servants, but they did what he told them to do anyway. And these jars needed to be completely full of water to prove that this wasn't just an illusion or a sleight of hand. I mean, Jesus could have found some really concentrated wine and added it to the water to make it look like he did a miracle, but that's not what happened because he filled them all the way to the top with water. He makes sure to eliminate that false claim even before it comes into anybody's mind. Well, then Jesus tells the servants to take some of this water to the master of the feast, the guy in charge. Now, these servants are sure that this Jesus guy has lost it. You want us to take this wash water and give it to the boss like it's wine? This sounds more like a practical joke than a real solution. But the servants obey, regardless of the apparent senselessness of this solution, because Jesus' mother had told them to, and if it didn't work, they could just blame Jesus or his mom. I mean, they were just following orders, right? But Jesus did provide a real solution. He did provide a solution through these servants. Notice that Jesus never personally interacts with the jars or the water, at least not physically. He tells the servants what to do. And the miracle is performed through the servants. Just like Jesus included others when he performed this miracle, he also uses others to perform the miracle of salvation in the hearts of believers. These servants got to participate in this miracle being done through their obedience. And when we obediently preach the gospel to the world, we get to participate in the miracle of salvation when people believe in Jesus to be saved from sin and death. Now, these servants got to witness firsthand Jesus' power over creation. And we get to witness firsthand Jesus' power over sin and death. These servants did not have any power to change the water to wine, but they were obedient anyway and experienced Jesus' power. And we do not have any power to bring people from spiritual death to life, but when we obediently preach the gospel, we get to experience Jesus' power as well. It might sound like a senseless solution to just tell people a simple message that Jesus died for their sins and rose on the third day. But this apparently senseless solution has real power. Real power, because God is the one who's doing it, not you not even the message itself. Well, we just saw how Jesus humbly used others to reveal his glory. Now let's look at verses 9 and 10 to see the result of his apparently senseless solution as he miraculously provided the wondrous wine. Here we see how Jesus proves he is the Christ by revealing his glory in his power over creation. The master of the feast is given the cup full of wash water that the servants drew from the jars, 
but it's not wash water anymore. It's been turned into wondrous wine. Sometime between the drawing of the water and the cup touching the lips of the master of the feast, Jesus transformed it into the very thing that was needed to fix this providential problem. I'm sure this was just a run-of-the-mill occurrence, right? This kind of thing happens every day. No, this is huge. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Well, at least not in this generation. Something similar had happened in Israel's past. When God was freeing them from Egyptian slavery, one of the judgments was turning all the water in Egypt into blood. In Exodus chapter 7. And after God had rescued them from the Egyptian army, passing them through the Red Sea on dry land, the people were thirsty. But the only water around was bitter, unfit for drinking. And in Exodus 15, 24, and 25, it says, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So to a Jewish audience, or those familiar with the story of the Exodus, this miracle that Jesus just did would have confirmed that he is God. Because God had shown his power in this way before. He's the creator of everything. And Jesus used his his creative power to prove his deity, to prove that he is the Christ. And when the master of the feast tastes this wondrous wine, he makes a point of commenting on its high quality to the bridegroom. He says that usually the good wine is served at the beginning of the feast, and then the cheap stuff is served after everyone is drunk when they don't care about quality anymore. Vintage wine at the beginning, boxed wine at the end. I mean, it's a frugal way to throw a party. But then he says, but you have kept the good wine until now. This wondrous wine that Jesus has created from wash water is better quality than the good stuff that was served at the beginning of the feast. You see, when Jesus fixes a problem, he does it to perfection. And if we think about it, a poor product would actually undermine his glory. The glory he was manifesting to his disciples to prove he is the Christ. And Jesus, he really does love people. So it would have been completely out of character to fix this problem with a shoddy provision. In fact, I would bet that this wondrous wine is better than any wine that has ever been produced in history. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because this wine has not gone through the normal process. It's not been subject to the curse of futility. Back in Genesis 3, When God dealt the consequences for Adam's sin, he cursed the ground and its produce. But this wondrous wine came directly from God, not from the cursed ground. 
And it's the same wondrous wine that we will enjoy one day at the marriage feast of the Lamb. So Jesus humbly answered this providential problem by using others in an apparently senseless solution to miraculously provide wondrous wine in a display of his power over creation. Now in verse 11, John, the author, gives us a summary of the effect this miracle had on the disciples as they experienced Jesus's manifested majesty. Here we see how Jesus proves he is the Christ by revealing his glory to produce faith. This miracle happened at Cana of Galilee. John has already told us this at the beginning of this scene, but he repeats this information here because it's important. It's important to remember that this first miracle was performed in a humble way so that Jesus' glory would be revealed only to a select few instead of the whole world. And this miracle truly manifested Jesus' glory. It may not have displayed it very broadly, but it displayed the true depth of his glory as the Christ, the Son of God. It displayed his power over creation that had only ever been seen before in the power of God, both in judgment and in mercy. God's judgment to Egypt, turning all the water to blood so they couldn't drink it. And God's mercy to Israel, turning the bitter water sweet so they could drink it. This miracle also manifested Jesus' glory because it showed his compassion for people. He had such compassion for these people that he fixed their problem in a way that brought them a whole lot of happiness. 180 gallons of perfect wine uncorrupted by the curse of the fall. But this humble miracle that truly manifested the glory of Christ had a purpose, a goal. That goal was to produce faith in the hearts of Jesus' disciples and ultimately to produce faith in the hearts of those of us who read this gospel account. The disciples had heard the testimony of John the Baptist and the other disciples that Jesus is the Christ, just like we read that testimony back in chapter one. But the servants that got to experience Jesus's miracle firsthand, they had not heard that testimony. So we read nothing about any of them believing in Jesus. You see, faith is produced by the combination of truth and proof. Salvation by repentant faith only comes when the truth of the gospel is combined with the Holy Spirit to prove that truth to the heart. Truth alone does not penetrate the heart. And miraculous proof alone has nothing with which to penetrate the heart. Now, the miraculous proof that I'm talking about here is not some physical sign, though that is what happened with the disciples. What I'm talking about is the miracle of regeneration, the miracle that we were once spiritually blind, but now we can see. 
the miracle that we were once spiritually dead, but now we're alive. Now this whole account showed how Jesus manifested his glory to his disciples to produce faith in him because we all need proof to believe the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus may have had a humble beginning to his ministry, but seeing the truth of his glory proved like this, I mean, we've got to worship and glorify him for his compassion, his goodness, his power, his sovereignty, his providence, and his humble example. When we realize that it took the miraculous proof of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to believe the truth of the gospel, I mean, that should take any thought of our own wise choice of following Jesus and just chuck it out the window. God gets all the glory for his miracle of salvation. Now, for those of you who may not yet believe, you've heard the truth. Jesus is the Christ who came to die in your place and rise again to save you from sin and death. And now you must believe it and confess it. If you believe the truth of the gospel and submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then the Holy Spirit has already performed a miracle and proven the truth of this good news to your heart. You have supernatural proof. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then confess it. Tell God that you believe that Jesus died for you, and he was raised to save you from sin and death. Tell us that you believe. Tell the world that you believe. Because this truth that you believe by the Spirit's proof is world-changing. We all need proof to believe the truth. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this proof that we have that Jesus, your Son, he is the Christ. He is who he says he is. We rest all of our hope on that truth that you have proven to us through your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would remember this throughout the week, every day. Jesus is the Christ, and he loves us, and he died for us. So that any sadness, any temptations to sin can just fall by the wayside because the love of Christ drowns them all out. When we really focus on your love for us, all other things get drowned out. 
I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that, to flood our minds with the love of Christ, with your love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.